I didn't know that I would learn so much about who I am by being a mother. And so figuring out how to mother somebody who's just like me, sort of in the ways that I wish I were better. Like he mirrors the hard parts. He mirrors the parts that have been really difficult for me to manage my whole life. I'm Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. Every other week, I talk with artists who are also mothers and caregivers about their postpartum creative process. You can find out more about the podcast at www.postpartumproduction.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Hello, dear listener. Artist Kate Duclos-Rosenbaum and I spoke during the podcast last episode about motherhood and how her art has shifted over time with different spaces and energies demanding her attention. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to check it out first, as there's some valuable context about who Kate is as an artist. You can hear more about her art in the first part of this episode on our website, www.postpartumproduction.com. Today, we're talking more about her relationship to her neurodivergent son and how his diagnosis has shown a light on who she is as a person, a mother, and an artist. I actually had this incredible opportunity recently to meet with a group of women who are artists and writers at this sort of ad hoc retreat residency situation where I actually brought my daughter, my third, the youngest, who's two months old, and drove up to Healdsburg to where this woman, Patty, had rented a house for us to work at. And one subject that came up in conversation over dinner was about, there's actually research that, I don't know if this is just unique to the maternal brain, actually. I'd be curious if it's, I don't remember, but that middle age, there's a literal like brain shift, if you will, where you care less about like what exactly what you're saying, where you care less about pleasing everyone, where you care less about that competition. And it's just about, I don't care. I'm just going to do this and I'm not going to think about other people. And I had this thought that I'm really curious about now that more and more women are having children later in life. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering about the intersection of becoming a mother and the brain shifting in that way at the same time and how that overlap then is facilitating these conversations and is facilitating shifts in the art world, in politics, in places where previously it may have come later in life, right? But now it's like, well, I don't give a shit and I'm a mother. Okay, well, that's an, you know, like how would that have been different where I like much younger and feeling still the intricacies of identity and just sort of growing your own self and security. And I don't know, I'm curious about the brain, you know, I don't know, I'd love to learn more about that. It's interesting. I mean, hormones too. I mean, right. So much of premenopause and menopause, I think that that also affects women to like a great deal in terms of how they function in the world. But that's really interesting. I mean, I had my first when I was 36. Yeah, I was 36 when I had my first. And I can't imagine. I mean, my mom had her first at 22 and then 23, 25 and 27, three kids done. I cannot even conceive of that. Like to look back on who I was when I was 22 and to envision that person being responsible for another person is scary to me. Like downright scary. Like, thank God, (laughs) because I was barely responsible for myself at that point. And so I think, I mean, so much has to shift 
which is not at all to say that like young mothers are not as good as older mothers. It's not about that at all. But I think there has to be a major difference in how you see the world and how you see your children through your eyes at different ages. And I know for me in particular, like I have had to put myself, I mean, all parents have to put themselves second, you know, it's like your kids come first. But I think that if you have a kid that has extra needs on top of kind of standard childhood needs, you really do have to subvert yourself and say like, okay, this person and the creation of this person is far more important than whatever person is inside of me right now. It's a really intense form of nurturing that I definitely wouldn't have been able to handle at a younger age. Yeah, I don't think I would have been able to do that. I don't know. Kate brings up an important aspect of motherhood that is inherent in the role, the ability to put others' needs before yours. It's not something we talk so much about in this podcast, but it runs as a through line in our lives as mothers and is one that is often in conflict with the balancing of professional and parenting identities. It also butts up against what Western and particularly American society sees as the role of a mother in the home one that is, thankfully, currently being re-examined and redefined, as Kate herself is exploring. Let's talk a little bit about that, because I know that's coming up for you in your work now, and I'm curious about your experience, as you said, parenting a child with extra needs, and your own exploration as well, as I think you've mentioned, about recognizing who you are and your neurodivergence in this world, which I also want to talk a little bit about because I disclosure, my firstborn, while she's not been diagnosed with autism, definitely is not, I guess these are the terms we use now, right? Neurotypical. I mean, I'm just like still getting comfortable with like what I'm trying to say, you know, because really what I think I'm trying to say is- You don't want to offend anybody. (laughs) Well, yes. And the world is requiring something of humans that I just don't think, I don't think it's that there's this, it's like, what is atypical and what is typical? Well, what is typical is just what fits within, again, like Pat, exactly, (laughs) patriarchal world. And then if anyone else, oh, oh, we don't fit. Okay, let's put you outside of this then, right? Like, let's move you and let's decide that then you are not quote unquote normal in this world, right? So anyways, that's my own, again, additional color on that, but I'm curious, yes, (laughs) my own rage. Right. So then how are you navigating that relationship between, right, what the way in which both it sounds like you and your son see and live in the world and what the world is expecting of you? So my six-year-old son is diagnosed autistic with a potential ADHD diagnosis likely in the future. I mean, he was diagnosed last summer. I have known that he was neurodivergent since he started to draw because I have a art education background and I could take one look at his three-year-old drawings and say, that brain is not normal. Like the brain that made (laughs) this is not like, you're not in the early childhood art ed, the Mm -hmm. kind of the checkpoints that it's hit. His checkpoints were very different. And the way that I could see him visually laying out his experience was fascinating. So I knew that he was neurodivergent before any doctors told us that. I didn't know what that meant. And I still don't really know what it means, his life and our life. In finding out that he was autistic, it has opened up my whole life for examination because the apple does not fall far from the tree. 
and in sort of discovering more about autism and how it presents a so much more of a wide variety than what we are kind of taught from the stereotypical presentations that we get in the media. There's so much that you just wouldn't, you don't know until you start learning about it. So it's been a huge learning curve and it's just opened my eyes to a lot. It's made me realize that the way I go about living in the world, there are differences that I didn't know. Like I have a lot of sensory sensitivities and issues that I never knew were based in sensory experiences. And so figuring those out and figuring out that there's a reason behind them. Like I do not receive messages from my body. Like I don't feel hunger or thirst until my body is reaching a point where it's like, if I don't drink something, like I'm not going to be able to swallow. There's has always been an intense desire to avoid things like showering for a long time. It was just like, oh, I'm just like a dirty, lazy person. No, I'm neither <laughs> dirty nor lazy. It is because the idea of getting going from being dry and warm to being wet and cold and then having to get dry again is sensory health. Like that experience is horrible. I dread it. And other people have said, oh, take baths. And it's like, that makes me feel like I'm going to crawl out of my own skin, being trapped in a small place and full of water and not being able to move. That sounds terrible to me. So there's so many things like experiences as a child that I look back on. I would spend hours and hours arranging these pattern blocks into these really intricate designs as a four-year-old. Like that thinking has stayed with me my whole life. And so it's been really interesting, specifically from an art perspective, to look at my son's neurodivergence and what he makes, and then look back at my own life and see what I've made and to make those connections. And one of the main features in autistic brain is pattern recognition and sort of a heightened ability to make connections, not with people, that's super hard but between ideas. And that is something that I have excelled at my whole life, but I've never been able to really even take pride in it because I didn't understand what it was. I could never say like, oh, I excel at pattern recognition because that wasn't even a term that I was familiar with enough to even know that I was good at it. There's been so much that I'm just rediscovering about my personality. I'm looking back on social issues and like things could have been so much easier. So the work that I'm doing now is really centered on figuring out all of my own triggers and traumas and sorting through it while side by side looking at my son's and his interests. Like a two current series that I'm exploring this in, one is through Lego because my son is a Lego fanatic. And I sort of said, okay, if Lego is going to be a part of our life in this huge way, and it really is just they're everywhere, like just it's Lego city in my house. If he's going to be so into this, I need to find a way to get into it as well. And so I started making these color compositions using Lego and we build side by side and he makes them as well. And so that's become like a family activity. And again, it's like, if I'm going to make, and I don't ever have any time to make, I have to make with what's available. I have to see with what I have and say, okay, make with what is around you, make with what you have. The old story about writing, like write what you know, write what is in front of you. And I think that that has been such a gift to give myself because now I get to make art out of Lego and that's awesome. And then the other series is torture because I'm choosing materials that I hate to touch <laughs> and I'm making work with them on purpose to try to tease out a sensory experience in the viewer. And so the current pieces that I'm working with involve steel wool 
and wire mesh and cotton balls. Cotton balls are like my nemesis. The idea of touching a cotton ball, even thinking about it, makes all the hair on my body stand up, makes me feel hot, like this burning sensation. Even just looking at a picture of a cotton ball just makes this feeling. And so making sculptures with them was really difficult. I had to pause every time. I had to brace myself to pick it up. It was almost like a performance piece just in the making of them. And I kind of wish that I had videotaped it now in retrospect. I was going to ask if you had recorded that process. I'm going to have to because there really (laughs) is a sensory element there. And then seeing if other people have similar reactions to them, like seeing the people who say like, oh, I would have no problem touching that. And then having other people be like, no, I don't want to touch that either. Yeah. It's really interesting to tease out once again, these are my personal hangups. But when I share them, other people have them too. Like I'm doing this self-portrait series of me and I take a picture of myself at the end of the day. Usually I have my hair up all the time and I sleep with it. And because I don't shower every day or every other day, even my hair is constantly just like I showered this morning. It's nice and straight and pretty, but it'll be up after today. I'll put it up tonight when I go to bed and then it'll stay up for days. And so I take these self-portraits when I take my hair down and they're self-portraits that are focused on not looking pretty, which is what I think I tried to look my whole life. Like, let me try to be pleasing for somebody. And now I'm taking pictures that are not pretty. It's like this giant frizzy hairball in front of my face where you can't even see me. And the idea is that I'm trying to find what I am interested in seeing in myself. I'm not interested in seeing myself as beautiful anymore. I'm interested in finding out what's under that and subverting the beauty and figuring out what else is there once I've shed the male gaze. There's so much to explore when you open yourself up to allowing your experience to be important Mm -hmm. and to be valid and to share it. If you're brave enough to share it, other people find themselves in it and it's magical. There's an interesting phenomenon we feel as mothers when we start to recognize the less culturally accepted parts of ourselves coming through in our children. I started to see that in the way that Kate describes her own sensory experiences. For me, it's in my daughter's big feelings, often her anger, that I see ways in which my own big feelings weren't accepted as a child. Especially for young girls, there's often a sense that their voices need to be muffled, that their opinions can't be expressed forthrightly. At the same time, I'm not someone who enjoys a hug. It took me a long time to recognize that there's nothing wrong with my strong sense of bodily autonomy. And thankfully, I've raised my neurodivergent daughter to be able to confidently voice when she doesn't want physical touch. Consent is obviously such an important part of human relationships, and this should even play a larger role in the parent-child navigation too. At the same time, I asked Kate what she thinks postpartum is. I love the varied responses to this question that we've been getting throughout the podcast. And Kate's also, because I thought of the literal definition when I was defining it for this podcast too. Well, that leads me to what is actually a question I'm thinking is probably going to be a question I ask everyone that I talk to, which is what is, so there's two parts to this question. One, what is postpartum to you? Because, you know, we first met because... We were both in postpartum, quote unquote, kind of together, right? But how would you define that now? And then I'll ask the second question. I'll wait. (laughs) It's interesting. I think 
I mean, postpartum for me, there's the technical definition that I would say my like very literal brain needs to make. I have a very literal, when it comes to language, I like actual definitions. I like very precise use of language. And so I would actually have to look up the precise definition of postpartum. And then I would have to see if my definition is different than that before I even answer this. And this is autistic thinking. It's like, I don't have enough information to even answer that. But if I were to just answer it without kind of giving my brain the satisfaction of what it needs right now, postpartum for me is everything after becoming a mother. There's no taking it back. (laughs) You can't go back. Yeah. So for me, I think I'm still very much in the postpartum period. Yeah. Maybe I'm shifting a little bit. Maybe I'm starting to figure out what's post postpartum. I don't know. (laughs) Sorry, you've got me thinking about all of the kind of like, what is it called? My brain again, as I am in postpartum, I guess. Yeah, not eras, you know, in terms of artistic or literary. Oh, God, help me, help me, help me. I mean, a literary era that works. No, I know. But I'm thinking like when people are, you know, like you'd say postmodern, modern, postmodern, what's post postmodern, you know, literary, what is it called? I was thinking era, but I don't think that's it. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, it's only something you can know upon looking back, right? Yes. Yeah, so like yeah, you are saying, it's only in red, like I'm in it now, right? So it's like weird yeah. to say like, am I in it now? Am I not? Is there a certain part of postpartum I'm not in, right? So it's, it's interesting to hear you say, oh, am I in post postpartum? And what is post postpartum, right? I mean, what is late early postpartum, mid postpartum, late postpartum? <laughs> we could come up with all sorts of new definitions. Yeah. I mean, I think that, again, I go back to like the technical versus the colloquial or the way in which we use it. And I think the way in which we use it is it's early child, it's early post-birth, like, you know, your first six to nine months. But I feel very much, again, like there's no going backwards. And so, yeah, I don't really see me ever not being in a postpartum period. Mm -hmm. Maybe when the the kids are like grown up. When you really kind of say like, okay, I no longer have to shape you when they've been shaped and they refuse any more shaping. (laughs) Although my son refuses shaping now, so I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that's tricky and individual (laughs) and then unique to you and your relationship with them. (laughs) And so therefore there would not be one static (laughs) definition. Yeah, it's tricky. Anyway, well, this is why I was kind of, this is why I personally was interested in calling the podcast postpartum because I think there's this idea that there's a mechanism out there. There's this like, whether it's obstetrics or gynecological or different interactions that you have with different institutions that define that for you. Yeah. And I like the idea of us saying, wait a minute, I'm going to actually I'm redefining this. Like, I'm going to say this is something other than what you're telling me that my experience is. So there's that. Production. So you have talked a little bit about money. You've talked about producing milk. I mean, you've talked about all these different layers of what we produce Mm -hmm. as artists and as mothers. And so I'm curious what that word brings up for you. I am an intensely productive person. And this is something that is, again, a blessing and a curse for me. I am a prolific maker. People ask me all the time, what is your inspiration for working or what are you inspired by? And I say, I don't have inspiration. I have compulsion. 
So wait, tell me though, because I'm going to unpack that just a little bit. You're saying that production is making, which I think is interesting. Like there's a literal. So for you, production has to make something material. Yeah, I think you can have productive thoughts. Thoughts can be products. Absolutely. Productive thinking, for sure. I think that no productive art comes without productive thinking. So the thinking has to come first. And I think that the postpartum period is just rife. It's like you've created something and all these juices are flowing and your emotions are raw and it's kind of you at your most base instinctual place. And it makes sense to me that being in that just animal place ends up building up this creative energy because it's sort of counterintuitive. You think like, oh, I should be exhausted and I should like not want to be doing anything. And I think a lot of women have this like urge to, I don't know, whether it's nesting or kind of making your motherhood what you want it to be. I think there is a way to kind of harness that energy and people harness it differently. For me, I have to make things. I have to take this internal order that I have in my head, like an internal way of seeing the world and interacting with the world. I need to project it onto the external world. That is my internal drive. And it's been that since I was a kid. So people, other artists ask me, like, how are you making so much work while you're at home? Like, give me your tips or your, I've been asked to parcel out my way of doing this for other artists in the hopes that they could replicate it or something. Mm -hmm. And my answer is usually like, I can't do that for you. This is just how my brain works. I use every minute. Like there's not, I'll find a 20 minute period of time and I'll be like, what? Oh, I have to make something in 20 minutes. I'll get an idea and I will just get the cement out into the kitchen and I will make it right then. There's an urgency that I feel all the time. And it's impossible to not answer that urgent call to make. And that's why I say it's a compulsion and not an inspiration. But how has that changed now that you're home, though? I'm hearing that you're versus being in a studio, for example, like when you're at home and now you're saying, I'm going to run and I'm going to grab this and I'm going to do this in this time. Has that changed since you've been working? You were doing that in, or would you run to the studio? I'm just trying to think like when you didn't have access. No, I make more work. I make more work now. I make far more oh, interesting. work at home since having children than I ever did before. And that's because I have such little time that I don't mess around. Like for me, there's no second guessing. There's no, let me sit down and think and oh, I'm going to have my coffee and leisurely. No, it's like, you have an idea, quick, make it before you get interrupted or before something in life comes up. So I have a way of doing the things when they need to get done and not setting them aside. And I think that that's not possible for a lot of artists because of the way in which they work. If you're an oil painter, that's a specific process. And you can only do that process a certain way with a certain amount of time in a certain space. When I moved home, when I said, okay, I'm getting rid of my studio, I became a conceptual artist because my work was no longer based on a specific medium. It's based on the ideas. And when your work is based on ideas, you can do it anytime, anywhere. And then those ideas get kind of pushed into objects that I'm making. And those objects are completely based not on what I want to make, but what objects are available to me and what those objects want to become. Like I see something and I say, oh, that's really yellow, that object that I just found. Oh, that's a very yellow object. The thing that is special about that object is its yellowness. How can I use that yellowness 
to be something else or to make something else. Like I see something and I say, what is the defining characteristic of that thing? And can I change it? Can I amplify it? Can I transform it? Can I make somebody see it in a different way? How does this relate to me? So my way of producing, I can't separate it from how I view the world and how I come into contact with objects. And I don't know how much of that is personality or neurodivergence. It's really hard to separate those two. I do know that because I am around my work all the time and because my work is my life, that makes it easier for me to make more because I am not limiting myself. And if you don't limit yourself, if you're open to any possibility, then like it's a given day, I can make a whole bunch of stuff because I just do it, just do it. (laughs) But I know that that doesn't work for everyone else. Like, again, I can't give advice to other people on how to produce in that time period. It's really hard. And also my kids, my kids, they get it. Like you have to have a certain family that accepts the way in which you go about the world. Like my husband knows that he might come home and the kitchen's going to be covered in cement and the paint's going to be everywhere. And our toy room, we have this nice little built-in bookshelf situation and it could be really beautiful, just set up one way all the time. But I'm constantly taking it apart and putting new sculptures there and photographing them. And like my house is constantly in flux because my work is always in flux. And the fact that my family has kind of allowed that to be part of our existence is why it works. I think if I was with somebody that got bothered by clutter or got bothered by messes, it would not work. Um, The word that just came up for me was disruption, but in a really like fruitful, generative way. Like I see you're disrupting the space of motherhood, like you're disrupting the home, yes, which is really powerful. Right. I mean, you were saying like, this is my artistic self and I'm just going to plop it right here, like <laughs> right at the kitchen counter and everyone else is going to have to deal with it. Like, yes, <laughs> I think that's something that we can take. Like those of us who want to have that, like if we can't take the compulsion because we're just exhausted and we right. just can't handle it, I think that we can take the ability to say that like, I'm just going to live in this right now. And if that means that everyone else has to shift around me, so be it. I do have to ask though, how, when you're making that, how that fits within the, I guess, and I know the art world navigates this in its own way. You know, I'm coming from the literary world where you produce a literary work and then you have to sell it. Again, you are also navigating that. How much of that is a part of your process and how, I know you mentioned obviously the privilege that you're coming to already in terms of this art doesn't have to feed your children. Yes. And I'm just sort of curious how you navigate that, all of that. You know, I know it's a lot and maybe we don't have time to dig into it, but. I mean, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky that I don't have to make a living doing this, but there is an element, like I said, so there is this compulsion to make and that compulsion exists regardless of whether I have an outlet for what I am making. Mm Mm-hmm. And writing too, I studied writing undergrad. That was my first creative outlet. And so I have that built-in process in my head also of kind of the writing, the getting the idea, the going back and editing it. And that process is very different for me than the visual process. I'll actually have a couple essays in some books that are being published in the next couple of years. Oh, nice. All about this work and motherhood. But I think that not having the outlet first versus having it. It's a different creative path. So for example, I have a solo show coming up 
in November here in Vancouver. I do not know what I'm making for it yet. I have the freedom to do whatever I want in this gallery space. That's sort of terrifying because I have a reason to make things. All the work that I'm currently making is not for anything in particular. I am just making. And then I apply to shows with that work, or I'm now at a point in my career where galleries are reaching out to me and saying, we would like to show this work or what do you have like this, or like I'm being approached and that prior to making this body of work, that didn't really happen. And so I think I'm far more successful, even if I'm not selling a ton or supporting myself with it, I'm far more successful as an artist than I was when I was making work that was not about me. And that in itself is very interesting. For me, why would somebody want to buy something about me? But again, it's not about me, it's about them. I loved hearing more about Kate's making spaces, where her art and life intersect, quite literally, in her home studio. Also, how she navigates the pressure to sell her art versus the pure impetus of a creative piece. I wondered, as she does, are these mutually exclusive? I don't have the pressure to produce, but I'm going to make it anyway. And then I have the pressure to not fill my house with it. Like (laughs) my house is full of my own art, which is not great. Cause then you're just sort of surrounded by ideas that literally didn't go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It's really hard to kind of (laughs) see them all the time and know that they're not going anywhere. You know, it's like sitting amongst all your like failed things that you tried to make happen and then it didn't happen. But I will say, and now I'm making sculptures. It used to be, I have this giant flat file drawer. You know, it's huge, this 42 by 38 massive set of drawers. And it was easier when I was making 2D work because it's like you paint it and then it can go in the drawers. But now I'm making like cement sculptures. (laughs) It's like those have to have a place to live. (laughs) So... Yeah, it would be great to be able to kind of get them out into the world. I think as artists, you kind of have to choose what you care about or prioritize it. I could prioritize selling, but then I would have to make in a specific way. I would have to make things that people wanted to make their houses pretty. And I can make that work and I can sell it for affordable prices that other people will say like, oh, that's not too much for art. But that would be like getting a job somewhere where I would feel restricted to kind of do what needs to be done. And I wouldn't be able to follow my compulsions. And so that mode of making is not sustainable for me. I'll go through periods of time. I have a website shop that I open up twice a year around the holidays and then usually in the spring and the summer where I will promote myself and I will make work specifically to sell. And then I donate a portion of those sales. Mm -hmm. So. For me, if I'm going to make something just to sell, I have to also have a charity part to it. I think it's actually also part of my specific neurodivergent autistic profile in that I really have a deep feeling of needing things to be equal and fair and a deep sense of justice. And so I feel that if I'm going to be getting something, I need to be giving something. Mm. And when I'm making work that's more like, okay, a gallery is asking for it, I don't feel the same responsibility. Mm -hmm. I do still donate a portion of my sales all year long. That's really important to me. But I think when it's me trying to make money, it's even more important for me to give that back. And maybe that's my like anti-capitalistic, like my little streak. Like I could never be a hoarding billionaire. I would just end up giving away so much of it. (laughs) 
I always wonder too, is that like, it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately, hoarding specifically, like resource hoarding, hoarding that isn't even just material, like hoarding of opportunities, hoarding, of, right? I mean, my child is in school. I think about education, hoarding of information, hoarding. I mean, it goes and goes and goes. But I think about being a woman and how that impulse, I feel that same. And I don't know. I also definitely am. I don't know. I haven't done the investigation that you've done. A lot of what you're saying is resonating, not all of it, but yeah, a lot. The tactile stuff for sure for me. Hugs make me really uncomfortable. Oh yeah, don't touch me. Which I'm like, <laughs> I hate. Sometimes I have so many people that I like. My midwife is the best <laughs> hugger ever. My, and I'm like, I want to hug you, and this is still making me. And I love you, and this makes me uncomfortable. My husband will be like, oh, like you have to ask to touch me. Which is also how we're raising our children. Like it's like yeah. none of this idea it's of like, oh, yeah. yes, it's another story, right? Of just this, <laughs> I'm gonna touch you and not ask you. Although my second born is just like my husband. He's so physical. And it's just, I'm like, oh my gosh, like you Uh, need so much physically of me. Yeah. I love though that in your art, you're able to mine that and enact it and create it in the physical sense. Because for me as a writer, I have trouble, like I can write about that, but it doesn't feel as physically satisfying. I'm projecting that it does for you to birth that. Like there's this like real material sense. I think there is. I mean, some pieces not. Like, it depends on the piece. You know, there are some pieces that after I make it, there is this, like, that is what I wanted to make. I'm satisfied because I had an idea and I made it and it came out how I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, though, my making is not like that. I don't have the, the outcome in mind. I let the material, this sounds like cheesy. I don't know how else to say it, but I let the material decide for itself what it wants to be. And then I kind of guide the process. And I think, you know, there's a lot of letting go. I'm a person that I don't let go easily. I've recently found out I'm doing some physical therapy and I've recently found out that I clench my entire body all the time, all the time. I knew that I clenched my teeth. Like that's been something that I've known my whole life. I have some TMJ and I have jaw issues. And I recently found out that I have spent my whole life opening and closing my mouth incorrectly. I use my tongue the wrong way. My limbs, I feel like I'm slipping a lot in space. And so I have to tighten my body up and kind of clench all my muscles so that I feel like my body is not going to fall off of itself, which is a very weird sensation. And I have only recently found out that that is an actual sensation that has to do with like sensory input that your body is not receiving. So again, it's like finding all this stuff out. It's crazy to learn about yourself. You know, I'm 41 now and learning all these things that, gosh, it would have been helpful to know (laughs) so much, (laughs) so long ago. (laughs) Women are notoriously overlooked, especially with autism. And I have not been formally diagnosed. I'll say that I'm on a wait list, an 18 month adult diagnosis wait list. But I've done all the kind of self-diagnosing that one can do with all of the tests. And I've read just about anything. So I'm as sure as I can be. And I'm, you know, on the fence about whether or not I need a doctor to tell me one way or the other. Your kids make you see a lot about yourself. I didn't know that I would learn so much about who I am by being a mother. I don't think I knew that. And it sounds like who you are as an artist as well, or. Yeah. I don't think I can really separate it at this point. I think it's really hard to tease those two things apart because again, it's all shaping materials. Like that's what I'm interested in doing is shaping things. And that's the biggest struggle with my son is his particular autism profile. He has a demand avoidant profile, which means he, anything that is a demand or a request or 
just if he sees it as threatening his autonomy in any way, like his sense of individual freedom, he has a fight or flight response. And that creates a lot of big emotions, lots of big emotions in our house. And my personal kind of struggle is that I'm the same. I'm demand avoidant. We have the same personality. And so figuring out how to mother somebody who's just like me, sort of in the ways that I wish I were better, you know, like he mirrors the hard parts, he mirrors the parts that have been really difficult for me to manage my whole life and anger and noise triggers. Like I've recently figured out that his screaming and like the screaming of the kids is a really big trigger for me. Like I get sensory overload. I can't handle the noise. It does. I wish I knew all of this before he was born. I would have been able to be a better mother during those first few years that were really hard with this kind of demand avoidance. Cause you know, it's like you go through that period where it's tantrums and everybody has the kind of meltdowns that toddlers have. And then you kind of get out of toddlerhood and then you're like, Oh, but this is still happening. What's going on here? It takes a long time to figure out. And I think it's going to be a life's work. Yeah, it's going to be a long journey, I think, to kind of supporting him in the way that he needs to be supported. But it's been such a gift. He's incredibly brilliant in these ways that just blow me away. I'm constantly jealous of the art that he makes. I'm constantly just like, I would have never made that line or that choice. And he did. And it's fascinating to me to see the way he works. But yeah, neurodivergence and just the idea that we all really do experience the world so differently and so little of it gets talked about. You know, you don't talk to people about how they experience inside their head everything that's happening. You know, do you see thoughts? Do you see pictures? I recently found out that there are some people in the world who have no ability to make a mental picture, like nothing. We actually went to high school with somebody who does not have the ability to form mental images. And he did not realize that he didn't have that ability until he was in his 30s. All his life, somebody saying, picture this. And he right. thinking that that was just like a phrase people said, because of course you can't picture things. It's crazy to me. There's so yeah. many different yeah. ways. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, I mean, I could talk to you. I was just thinking I have so many more questions and I'm like, <laughs> I can't. I'll have to keep them offline or we'll have like podcast 2.0 or podcast whatever episode I'm a long-winded <laughs> the B, the B-sides, the B-sides. Oh, I love it. I appreciate it. I am as well. Hence my questions that are one question that take me 10 minutes to ask. But everything you've said has been so impactful to me. So I can imagine will resonate. I find it interesting too, that I am not the type of artist that you are. And yet I already feel like I've gained so much, even from a practical standpoint. So I appreciate that because that's oh, not you. always easy to do. Maybe it's your teaching background, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm so grateful for this time. And we will also include in the podcast links to your work. We'll continue. Obviously, this isn't a just one moment thing. And we can always continue to refer anyone who's come across your work through this to what you're producing in the future and what you're working on to come. So I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, it was such a joy to be here. I'm so glad that you reached out. And yeah, the parallel paths are funny. We didn't even touch on the time in China. I know. I thought about that too. <laughs> Although don't even break out the Mandarin because mine is so rusty right now. <laughs> Mine's okay, actually. It's my daughter and I speak it. And I have caregivers that speak only Mandarin. So that helps as well. And family and friends that are local. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, well, thank you. And I am excited for what's to come. I've really enjoyed this. And I look forward to listening to all the other episodes too. Yes, absolutely. 
Good luck with your producing. Thanks, Catherine. (laughs) Kate's relationship to her son and how she's learned more about herself as a result of parenting him feels in direct relationship to her art and the boundless compulsion or productivity she feels to create it. As we've uncovered in this episode, Kate's learned so much from her son's neurodivergence that she wonders if she too can be the artist she is without that connection. You can find Kate's work at www.catherineduclos.com and more about her in the show notes for this episode. I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. This will help us reach more listeners like you who are navigating the joys and pitfalls of artistic and parenting identities. For regular updates, visit our website, postpartumproduction.com, follow us on Instagram at postpartumproductionpodcast, and subscribe to our podcast newsletter on Substack. Thank you for listening, and we are so grateful to have you with us on this journey. Postpartum may feel like forever, and sometimes it may feel very lonely, but you're not alone here.